Hey there, Freedom Fighters. Andrew Warner coming to you from Austin, Texas. It is so hot here. But Tyler, <laughs> Tyler Tringus is with me. I'm going to introduce him and then I got to ask him about him and then talk to you about where I am in like in my life journey right now. But um, thing that I'm excited about with Tyler Tringus is he's an entrepreneur who had a company called Store Mapper. And the story behind Store Mapper is that he he coded up the first version of it on an airplane from uh, Buenos Aires, I think, to San Francisco. Am I right about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that sounds like a cute origin story. I want to get a little bit more meat on that. But the idea was, hey, sometimes you buy online, but you don't want to actually complete the purchase online. You just want to understand it online and then go into a store and put up money after you try the product or see it in person. And so his software, Store Mapper, allowed online stores to put a map up on their site where people can find a local shop where they could buy the their products. He built it. He kind of built it in public and then he sold it in public. And then he created, um, well, one of the things he followed up with was the creation of the Com Fund. And he says it's funding for bootstrappers, which is a contradiction in terms, but I get what he's going for here. It's how do you fund somebody who doesn't necessarily want an exit and wants a fair relationship, whether they just make a profit for years to come, or maybe they do end up with an exit. And so that's what ComFund is about. Um, and we could do this interview thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first is Masterworks. I'm going to tell you later on that if you're investing, you should be considering investing in art. And I'll tell you later also why you should go to masterworks.art slash Mixergy. And if you're hiring developers, go with lemon.io slash Mixergy. And I'll tell you about those later. But first, Tyler, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm actually really excited to be here. I've been a Mixer G fan and listener since like way back at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, like ten years ago. So it's great to be here. Thanks. I've been following you for a long time. I don't know why I didn't have you on. Um, <laughs> I think what caused this interview was someone said that we just don't know enough about the Com Fund, and you said, "All right, I'm going to try to let people know more because it is a little bit of a different creature." And so that's what brought this on. But I've got to tell you, I'm freaking boiling hot. I've been enjoying Austin, but this Airbnb that we're in has terrible like air conditioning over here. But this is going to be my last interview from an Airbnb in Austin, Texas, because we bought a house here and I'm going to get to do it from my house in Austin with proper air conditioning and a nice big outdoor space. So maybe I'll do it outdoors, my own space. I'm really excited about that. Huge upgrade. Yeah. Well, you should definitely come and take a trip once you're settled into Mexico City, where where I live now. It's a really awesome short flight from Austin, and the weather is pretty much always perfect. So, Why are you in Mexico City? I remember being there for my marathons, where I was going to run a marathon on every continent. I did it, and interview entrepreneurs in every city. And the thing that I, that I liked about Mexico City was it was a very international city, felt like being in Europe. But dude, there's soldiers everywhere with heavy machine guns all the time. It felt like being in a military state. Hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, so we're here because um, my wife works for the State Department and has a job at the the embassy here. Um, right. So, you know, ComFund and every company I've built for the last decade is just fully distributed, fully remote. So I just kind of go where, you know, where her job takes her. Um, it's interesting. I don't, I'm not sure when you were here last, but it is much safer than okay. the public perception is of it, especially there's a sort of central core of a couple of really nice neighborhoods that most people come to Mexico City will spend 99% of their time in that area. And it's extremely safe. I mean, we 
walk home by ourselves at two in the morning, like all kinds of stuff. And, you know, generally Can feel you very sit in a coffee shop with a laptop and not worry about it being taken. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. All right. You know what? It, it was 2019. Maybe it was also just okay. a weird period there when that was going on. So that explains it. Is that why also while you were running um, Store Mapper, you were posting photos from all over the world? Were you traveling because of your wife's work? Uh, sort of. Yeah. At the time she was, uh, my girlfriend. So, um, I sort of prior to that had started kind of just digital nomading in general back when the sort of first wave of that was going around. I was like, this is a great idea. My rent in New York is really expensive. I can work from a laptop. Let's go see the world. And along the way, um, started dating who the woman who's now my wife. Um, we were sort of like, travel dating for a while so so her job was taking her all over the world and we would kind of meet up in different places like buenos aires we we hiked machu picchu together went to the galapagos together like all during the first couple months of dating um so that was part of it um but yeah i was kind of hopping around for a while there for a couple years you know what i couldn't figure out about you tyler is how seriously were you taking Store Mapper? I feel like you had a SaaS product that worked, that was producing money, that it gave you all this freedom and had all this potential. But sometimes you'd post like handstands or headstands in random cities. You talk about randomly firing off an email to someone saying, Do you, does anyone want to buy my company? You'd talk more about like the lifestyle of running a business and the business. How seriously did you take the business? And maybe I'm just trying to use a framework that doesn't apply here. I think, you know, maybe I didn't take it that seriously. I think that's a fair sort of assessment of it. You know, at the time where I was in life was I had just spent a couple years um, working on a more of a venture scale kind of startup um, in the clean tech space. So we were building software uh, to help people put solar on their roofs, kind of like a rocket mortgage for solar kind of thing. And it was a pretty painful experience. Um, you know, we were sort of naive and thinking like, okay, we have this business, we need some money to launch it. We need to raise some capital, I guess, let's go pitch VCs. And then we spent about two years, basically like raise a little bit of money, but then just pitched and pitched and pitched and pitched and pitched. And it was exhausting, excruciating. I lost all my money, you know? So I was in this mode of like, uh, let's just build something simple <laughs> for that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think one of the things I did learn is that it's easy to underestimate how big of a business, even like the most kind of comically niche things can be. Because even with StoreMapper, it started off as just a little side hustle, like experiment. And then it turns out, oh, hey, there's like some really tough problems around syncing the inventory from e-commerce to in real life and the distribute distributors don't have good data and all this kind of stuff that it was like there was a rabbit hole down there to create more value from what superficially seemed like it could be just a sort of lifestyle business, basically. Uh, so you'd gone from like taking things super seriously, had to be a billion dollar business from what I remember about the solar company, had to raise yeah. money, all that stuff didn't work out, lost the business, lost the money. And then you said, you know what, maybe I could have a different attitude here and enjoy it and have a side hustle. That explains a lot about it. And I told you, I went back to the Internet Archive to see what the first version looked like. The first version was essentially a Google Maps with virtual push pins. So I can just say, here's the stores that have it. And then put that, embed that Google map that you create for me on my site. You charged, you charged what, like 20 bucks a month for it, 200 bucks a year, somewhere around there. And mm -hmm. you saw if anyone would bite. Yeah. 
Yeah, ridiculously simple. Like I said, I built the the entire first version, like the the minimum viable product on a single international flight and it, it worked, you know, like people were paying for it uh, the next day. Um, How? So How did you get anyone simple. to buy it? Um, so basically after I shut down the previous venture, um, along the way, the one good thing to come out of that, um, in addition to having a much better understanding of how venture works and, and mostly how not to raise capital, um, was that I taught myself to code. And so I was doing freelance work, uh, for Shopify clients, like basically back end, front end stuff, um, just on an hourly basis. And so I had a bunch of clients in that e-commerce space. And that was a time period where, you know, a bunch of people were like launching a Kickstarter to start their brand, setting up a Shopify store to start getting sales. And then they'd get distribution in, you know, one or two chains or like all the Whole Foods in New England or these kinds of things. And so they were all having this problem of like, how do we transition from pure D to C to a mix of D to C and in-store sales? And so I just had a couple clients all say the same thing. And I thought, well, okay, well, let's, let's productize this. Um, so I shipped a quick product, sent it to like every client I'd had um, over the course of about a year. And that's where we got like the first six clients, you know, or customers for, for the product right away. How did you like being a consultant on the Shopify platform? It felt like such a difference for you from trying to build this monster company to taking people's direction on how to adjust their Shopify store? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't my favorite thing in the world. You know, I mean, I'm a self-taught developer, but basically out of that one period of time, like I've always, as quickly as possible, gotten other folks involved because, you know, I'm not that great at it and uh, I don't love it. Um, the good part about it was, you know, I mean, I was pretty public about this, but in the process of shutting down the business that I was working on and launching the next one, I accumulated like a humongous amount of credit card debt, um, which is sort of part of my motivation to wanting to help fund entrepreneurs at that phase of their business. But um, that was super stressful. And it was really nice to have this skill that I could easily bill out an hourly rate of like 100 bucks an hour, despite having only done it for a year and a half. Um, so that was cool. You know, it, it did let give me some some financial security, especially as I was nomading and like my costs might be a 1000 bucks a month. Um, so I was able to kind of dig out of that hole pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not built to be a consultant that's for sure man i remember interviewing people around that time actually before about how they were doing the digital nomad thing and running their companies and i remember all my skepticism pouring out in the interviews it didn't <laughs> seem like you could concentrate it didn't seem like the internet was dependable it didn't seem like this it didn't mm. seem like that and then i said all right let's try it and it was as good as people said I think yeah. a lot of people also get tired and burned out moving around. And I got a little bit of that, but for the most part, it was fantastic to be able to do it. And the prices really were dramatically lower as you moved around to other other places. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I, I did it for a couple of years and I mean, I don't know. I think my life would have been very different um, had I not made that decision because the, you know, there's a sort of thing that's, I guess, accepted wisdom now, which is one of the best things entrepreneurs can do is keep their personal burn rate really, really low because it just lets yep. you stay in the game, right? You know, if you have a huge mortgage and you have all this kind of stuff and you hit a wall, well, you have to just go get a job. You have to do something to, to solve that. If you can keep your costs like under $1,000 a month, 
you can kind of stay in the entrepreneurial game, which is exactly what happened for me. You know, I was able to not have to go get a job because I had left New York and, and was living in Argentina, Thailand, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did your girlfriend at the time think, am I getting involved with a loser here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is funny thinking back on that time because, you know, I think I did an okay job of sort of hiding the fact that I was like a broke entrepreneur. Uh -huh. Um, and you know, we were just enjoying sort of traveling for a while, but, uh, fortunately I was able to kind of like get out of the tailspin <laughs> fast enough in the relationship that I had some credibility, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure she was a little skeptical for sure. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder how you kept your confidence up considering. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think one of the sort of superpowers of being an entrepreneur is kind of just being a little bit naive to the overall kind of risks and things that you're taking, especially when you're, when you're younger. Um, and I was definitely a, a beneficiary of that. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, it, it didn't matter to me that I was still just like doubling down on this whole, like build my own life and, you know, had like $0 in a retirement account and a bunch of credit card debt. And I was getting older. I was just like, you know, this is, this is kind of the path for me is doing my own thing. And so let's go for it. Um, yeah. All right. So you launched pad map, uh, pad mapper. You then went out and told your previous clients, they signed up. You started getting revenue. What'd you do beyond going to the people you already work with? How'd you get more customers? Um, but, uh, one big thing is that we were lucky to be very early into the Shopify app store platform, which is, you know, something that I subsequently have sort of, you know, built into a bit of an investment thesis, right? Is looking for folks who can kind of hop on those waves early enough and be the default kind of go-to there because um, I experienced it firsthand. You know, Shopify was gr growing like crazy um, about, this is about, I guess, eight years ago or something like that. So it was like peak growth for them. Um, and, you know, we were just the beneficiaries of all their customer acquisition. Uh, more folks Shopify was growing. You went, I didn't realize how quickly you got into the Shopify marketplace. So you got in there, they helped you get more customers. Got it. In the same way that one of the companies the Comp Fund invested in, MakerPad, got into the no-code world really early. They started teaching people, creating community, et cetera, in that world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of value in, you know, getting in at the beginning of a bit of a wave of, of market momentum. Um, and it's it's definitely something that we started to look for and that, you know, I'll sort of advise entrepreneurs, hey, if you see that opportunity you know, really pounce on it. If you think, Hey, this, this underlying thing is going to grow really fast. And I can be one of the main beneficiaries of that. If I get in there and become the de facto, um, associated product. And that's how it was with MakerPad. It was like, they got into no code. Ben Tossel, the founder got into no code when like practically invented the, the term slash category. Um, and you know, just became sort of, uh, synonymous with, with the sector. And then it started growing a ton as well. So, um, yeah, they benefited a ton from that. They were fantastic. And they really got a good group of people in their community, people mm -hmm. who could, and they were so good about welcoming people who can use advanced tools, but also things, I think even like notion and Airtable, they, they welcomed those people in. So you could come in, 
create your first database using something simple like Notion and then keep progressing to no-code solutions. I, I really admire what they did there. Totally. Yeah. And they were in the education space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Education and community. Yeah. What do you see now as the the next big wave like Shopify was and no code kind of still is, but was undiscovered about a few years ago? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so in our fund, we have a couple of theses that we're operating on. Um, one of them is this idea that um, basically pushing modern software into every niche in the economy, right? So the idea that like you can now build software for a lot of these very specific industries that they're never going to adopt Salesforce, right? But they currently have like, you know, checklists and spreadsheets that they're using to run their business. And you can launch a SaaS business so cheaply now that it makes a ton of sense to build, you know, for random industrial applications or commercial real estate or even smaller markets. Like we recently in, invested in a company that builds software for food production facilities to manage their, their health and safety stuff. Th this would not have made any sense 10 years ago because it took millions of dollars to build even a basic SaaS platform. But now it's so cheap and so fast to launch that you can start to just pick off all of these industries kind of one by one. Um, so that's a big opportunity is to be the first mover in a particular, um, a particular industry. Um, another thing that I'm really excited about is the transition away from what I call like empty SaaS or empty software, which is, um, you know, we have a lot of these tools that you go, you sign up for the software and it's on the user to really make it valuable, right? You get a CRM, it's just a bunch of blank fields. Now you have to upload, you have to fill it out, you have to do all this kind of stuff. You, know, you get QuickBooks, it's just blank. You got to fill it with your transactions, all that kind of stuff. And we're starting to see a wave of folks do everything from just adding services to you know, using machine learning to have something where you sign up and it works right out of the box. Like it does the thing that you want it to do, right? Most people don't want bookkeeping software. They want their books closed, right? And so that's, that one's kind of already come and gone because you've got pilot and bench and stuff like that. But we're starting to see folks take that model and apply it to other opportunities where you take less of the um, take more of the burden off of the user. Um, even if you have incumbent software there, that, that becomes so much more valuable because you're actually doing the thing they want it done. So software and services, but basically we'll use our software to do the thing you're trying to do. And I, I see how in bookkeeping that worked really well. And I guess I could see that also done in CRMs, maybe even for mm -hmm. project management at first or for, I see that in a documentation world where if you're going to create a user manual, instead of giving people a blank document, go create your manual, we'll do it for you for a fee. And then yeah. all the stuff's in there. That's really clever. But you can imagine all the like help chat apps, right? There's a gazillion different things that you can do, you know, support chat, but all of them are bring your own people, right? But you can imagine like a version of that, that actually you drop it in and there's support that's baked in. So they are just answering your support tickets as soon as you sign up, uh, right? Or with some I would even say process. if they could put all the documentation in for you, that's a huge win. So you don't have right. to redesign their site to make it look like your site, add all your content, create all your macros. They do all that for you in the setup. And then 
uh, and then you've got software that just works. That's right. a really good. Uh, that's a really good approach. All right, let me take a moment and talk about my first sponsor, and then I want to come back and find out like what did you do to systemize the company so that you could have your company be a calm company and allow you to go and do headstands all over the world. But my first, actually, you know what? Why don't we talk about Lemon.io, dude? I had this sense. So Lemon.io is a great place to go and hire developers. They get developers from Eastern European countries, places where it's inexpensive um, to to work. But the developers want to work there. Frankly, sometimes they can't get they can't get into the U.S. and can't get into markets where they get paid more. And so you get great developers if you're willing to work remotely with them. Really low price. I've been giving them free ads. For weeks, because they're in Ukraine, he's trying not even to make a profit. He just wants to make sure, the founder does, that he's getting enough money to pay his people no matter what, even if for some reason they can't work because they're out of Ukraine. So, turns out the company is growing despite all that. He is now in the U.S. He's continuing to pay his people. And he then came back and he said, Andrew, you don't have to give us free ads. Just we'll buy more. And so I was on the phone with him before you came on and we're buying more. I have to say the other thing that I noticed about him. So yes, things are going well. I've never seen the freaking guy look more tired. I usually, if I talk to him after we're talking about work, about kids, he and I have kids roughly the same age and all that. He's just eager to talk about. He looked exhausted. He looked like he was not at all interested in having a further conversation with me. He was happy that he signed up. And now, Andrew, let's get back to work. So anyway, <laughs> all this to say, they're doing really well. They signed up a bunch of people from Mixergy ads so that I've got to tell you, this is before even I started running the free ads. They'd already been doing well. And so I'll tell you, if you're listening to me and Tyler, if you know anyone as part of your portfolio who's looking to hire developers, the beauty of working with Lemon is they will match you with a developer. They'll do it quickly. They won't just throw a bunch of people at you. They'll understand what you need, and then they'll find people who are going to be the right fit. All right. They're inexpensive, but if you use my URL, you'll get even a lower price. Here's the URL. Write it down. Share it with your friends. Um, and please don't post it online. It's lemon.io slash Mixergy. Even if you're not looking to hire from them, I urge you to connect with them, check them out so that you'll understand them and use them as part of your hiring mix. Lemon.io slash Mixergy. Yeah. Just want to throw in an endorsement for this overall strategy. I mean, we have about 70 portfolio companies now, and we're seeing lots of them leverage specifically Lemon.io or, you know, many tools like them to build kind of global development teams. Um, and it's such a valuable strategy, you know, either to build out as your first couple of engineers or to support and add leverage to, you know, some some local based engineers that you might have maybe in more senior roles. Um, it's super effective and really gives you a lot of optionality to be able to build those teams out in a way that's like a little more affordable than hiring folks in the U.S. So you don't end up with the sort of massive overhead of a of a U.S. based engineering team too fast. Right. Um, so, yeah, big thumbs up for me. <laughs> Thanks. You know, when you did it, it was back at a time when there was a big belief that all people, especially developers, had to be in-house, had to be fully on board and full-time employees. And I remember talking to an entrepreneur at the time who said at the end of the interview, thanks for mentioning the, the investor of our company, but I've got to tell you, he and I are in a big fight because we will not do, will not do the full-time office five days a week, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's insisting on it because that's the only way to build a cult. When... Was the first person you hired a developer or was it support person? 
Yeah, developer. Yeah, for sure. The first person I hired, because like I said, I mean, I'm not, I'm an, I'm an okay, like I can get the job done kind of developer, but you know, I need support pretty quickly. Um, yeah, and, and I was hiring remotely. I mean, I was a big fan of, um, you know, some of the stuff from the folks at like WordPress, you know, and, and that were talking about how to build remote companies and Basecamp and some of the, the sort of people at the vanguard of that. And I was like, this all makes sense to me. Let's go for it. Um, so I was hiring remotely and, you know, building sort of asynchronous first and interviewing people over Slack and GitHub pull requests because that's how I was going to be talking to them mainly, you know, wow. so um, I was kind of all in on that, um, you know, like I said, about 10 years ago. How did you manage that? I know that you, did you from the beginning have like a built to sell company where it was all organized enough that if you needed to sell it, it would be organized enough to pass or not? No, definitely built that along the way. Um, you know, one of the good things about running a remote asynchronous first company is it forces you to do a lot of that stuff, right? You really have to do quite a lot of, you know, documentation and business processes and things like that, that you can kind of get away with slacking off on if you're all in an office and you can just holler at someone like, hey, did you do that? But in your complete 24 or 12 hour time zone difference, you know, it's, it's really a big drag on the business not to have it all buttoned up. So we definitely had to build that um, as we as we built out the team. Um, but, I, you know, I wasn't the type of person who had that going from day one, you know, uh, for sure. Yeah. And so how did you start organizing it? I know that that was one of the intentional things. You wanted to be able to travel. You wanted to have it organized. And frankly, it seemed like you were really intent on having a four-hour work week a la Tim Ferriss. Am I right? I think so. I mean, I don't think I was totally all in on the idea of four hours a week. Um, but for sure, I mean, I was with this particular business as many entrepreneurs are, I was really optimizing for freedom, right? I wasn't necessarily trying to, at all costs, maximize the growth and value of the business so much as I was trying to balance the growth of the business with making sure that I was able to do what I wanted with with my time and, and where I wanted to be in the world. And so that meant, you know, some trade-offs, right? So for example, we probably passed on some enterprise, you know, white glove opportunities because I was just like, I don't want to build a team and I don't want to personally be answering the phone, you know, for, for, for customers. Um, so definitely made some trade-offs there for sure. But, um, you know, I think there's a, a bit of why we kind of like created this, this concept of calm companies is the idea that, you know, for a while, I think there was a false choice. It was like you either built a venture scale rocket ship or you built a four hour work week, sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais and, and you know, kind of slack off. And there's no middle ground, right? It's one or the other. And we've sort of been trying to reclaim this middle ground, which is how I think most entrepreneurs think about their business, which is a balance between, you know, growth and, and the economic part of it and making sure that you know, lifestyle, stress, burnout, all of those things are are also managed. I don't know. I guess I feel like most entrepreneurs are almost too all in on the chaos. And I know that I was like, I would not settle down and not take space because I felt like it was a mistake and it was going to weaken my company. And even if I would create busy work, which at some point I learned not to, I would value the busy work because it meant I was at least working on the thing. 
are you finding that there are enough people who are both ambitious and eager and believe enough in them, in their ideas and at the same time willing to take some time at the end of the day to do nothing to I don't know watch TV, play video games, play the guitar, go out with friends and not think about work? Yeah, we are definitely finding that. I mean, I will totally agree that the the overall sort of zeitgeist and advice around entrepreneurship was very skewed towards you have to be all in, you have to be, you know, up at 5 a.m., grinding more than everybody else, 100-hour work weeks, you know, all that sort of stuff. That was pretty much dominated the conversation around how to be an entrepreneur. But I think in their hearts, many entrepreneurs want, you know, much more of a balance, especially once you've been in the game for a little while, you actually start to feel the effects of burnout. You start to realize that what you're doing is not sustainable. And then you start to make kind of drastic changes. And, and maybe those aren't even the optimal changes, but you have no choice, right? Because you're just completely burnt out. One of the ways I like to frame the idea of a calm company is what I call being long-term ambitious, right? So if you are ambitious, you have big plans on what you want to do over a 10 to 25 year time horizon. And you start to think about what are the main things that are going to prevent you from getting to those long-term goals. Actually, major burnout is one of the biggest risks, right? Like if you have a 20 year plan, one of the biggest things is going to be you completely burn out, you wreck your personal relationships, you know, you wreck your relationship with your family, and all of a sudden, you just completely veer off course, right? And so I think proactively preventing burnout, preventing that stress overload is actually a form of being ambitious. It's about I want to make sure I stay in this game for the long haul. Like with our fund, I want to do this for the next 30 years. I want to invest in thousands and thousands of companies. There's no way I can work 100-hour work weeks and and you know go at, you know, 11 out of 10 for 30 years, right? It's just not I'm not going to get there and I'm actually less likely to get there if I try to do it. Um so that's kind of like the basic theory of of calm companies and we're definitely finding a lot of of folks. I mean, we have 100% of the companies we fund come inbound. They find us, fill out our application form, and and we invest from there. Um, so yeah, anyway, I think I it's like the name Com Fund. I what was the previous name? We called it Earnest Capital. Is what we launched as. And you're still on LinkedIn as Earnest Capital, which made finding you on LinkedIn such a pain. And <laughs> um, you got to go back and change that. I know. And, I'm not a I'm not a LinkedIn power user, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm not either. And I've got some friends who are on it all the time. They'll post videos of themselves with like little life advice. Who has the patience for that? But you know, they'll they're right. They have some followers there. But it does really help for searching. And frankly, I think you even come up when I use superhuman with uh with what was the previous name? I keep forgetting it. Ernest, Ernest Capital. Ernest. Yeah. I know mm. Ernest Capital means what? I mean, it was just, you know, it was so earnest as in E-A-R-N-E-S-T, um, yeah. you know, just like trying to find some of the right terms that resonated for right. this overall vibe, right? And so because the problem is like it, the predominant term that folks might use to describe these kinds of companies might be bootstrapper, but bootstrapper is this mix of a bunch of different things around how you value and prioritize different things in the business and also really tied up in this idea of not ever working with any investors, zero dollars of outside capital, right? So we say, okay, well, that's not the right term. 
what's in this space that kind of is the vibe and earnest. And I kind of did a little pun where we, we've underlined the E-A-R-N, right? Like emphasizing that these yeah, are earn. companies that actually make money, you know, as opposed to eyeballs or ads or whatever. Um, and so uh, it, that was the idea behind it. But honestly, you know, I'm very into just shipping things quickly. So I'm pretty yep. sure I like sat down in a weekend and was like, okay, let's name this thing. Let's look for some domains that exist, you know, <laughs> let's go for it. Um, and we rolled like with it for a little better. while. Yeah. Ernest, yeah. Ernest Capital does kind of evoke that deposit that you put now that we just bought the place. There was earnest money. money that you have to give as a deposit. It feels like someone who's going to clearly care and put their money into the thing they want to be a part of. So I get that. Come way yeah. better. All right, let's let's just continue with this story. I want to understand StoreMapper, close it out, and then find out how you got into Com, and then how the business model works, how much of your own money you're putting in, and so on. But as StoreMapper developed, I saw that you were getting a lot of your customers from Shopify. I think the majority of them were coming from Shopify, which is why you weren't able to show your, your bare metrics revenue publicly. At one point, you said, can't show this anymore because it's not accurate. It only includes our Stripe money. It doesn't include any money we're getting from Shopify. Where, what else did you do to grow, to get more customers in? And then let's talk afterwards how you systemize the business. Um, yeah, a couple of strategies. So one, we just replicated the, you know, what people call like integration marketing, right? So the, that's what I think the, the general category of, you know, get listed in the app store, build the authentication with Shopify. We just did that with every other e-commerce platform we could find, right? Just one by one, crank through whatever we needed to do the simplest possible integration and and get listed in their, their app stores. Um, that was one lever of growth. The second one was looking for, well, basically integrating a viral loop, right? So, I mean, this is pretty common, but sometimes people still overlook it, which is having like a powered buy, right? So the good thing about our product is it was public facing, right? You would actually install it on, a page on your website, you would promote that, you know, you would try to push people to that page. And so that was a free source of traffic for us was to, to basically put that tiny little thing there for, you know, the people who are motivated to say, Hey, this is cool. I need one of these, you know, let me find it. Um, that ended up being like a big source of, um, uh, of customers. And then, uh, the third big chunk was basically just SEO, essentially the, the power of claiming a niche, uh, on the internet and being the first person there. Um, you know, there just wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of independent products, uh, like this. And so, you know, by getting in early, having a very like, um, on the nose says exactly what it does name and and domain and all that kind of stuff uh we were just sort of the number one search result for a bunch of very relevant terms like you know store locator software stuff like that for for quite a while um and that was pretty much it i mean i think those were the three main drivers of of growth all of which you know were pretty organic zero cost and and compounding over time what about all that entrepreneurship writing that you were doing at the time, sharing your numbers, talking about the journey, posting yeah. what it's like to have that lifestyle? Was that helpful at all? It was 0% helpful for the actual business. There was almost no overlap in the audience mm. for that writing and uh, our customers, um, but it had much bigger long-term benefits of, of you know blogging very transparently, kind of helped me like build an audience, it helped me meet a ton of entrepreneurs, you know, because one of the things about this world of kind of bootstrapped, private, profitable startups is it's very 
nebulous, right? Like Patrick McKenzie calls it like the dark matter of the economy. It's like, it's there, it's having all this effect, but no one's tracking it. You know, people are not that motivated to publish. Like we have a $20 million a year business, you know? Um, and so by writing about it a lot, I was able to kind of beat the bushes, you know, and, and meet a bunch of people who were ahead of me in that journey, who were sort of my peers building similar companies. And then the, the huge mass of people who wanted to build these kinds of businesses, I was able to meet a lot of those folks either, you know, at scale through a newsletter, through Twitter, through whatever, or one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and that was the main benefit, which later rolled into, you know, the fund, like there's no way I would have been able to launch the fund had I not done five years of blogging about building these kinds of companies. Yeah. All right. Before we get into why and how you sold the systems, the organization, how did you keep the company running in such a calm, organized way? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to kind of sum it up, right? So one is just becoming kind of power users of some of the core software stack that you need to to run a remote company so we have always used like asana for task and project management um at the time we used like an internal wordpress theme which now we use notion for sort of just like documentation sops all that kind of stuff so just getting really good at that and then one of the things that we tried to create uh was was this kind of loop right which is always looking for documentation. So when the support team would answer a ticket, the last step of answering that ticket was not, it wasn't like, oh, I answered this question, click close, right? There was a last step, which was, did we have a support article about this, either internally documenting it or externally facing for customers? And if no, you know, should we? Is this an extremely esoteric question that we're never going to see again? Okay, fine. But like for the most of them, like, hey, we should document this, right? And so and they would do that. that. They would go back in. I think you called them support heroes at the time, right? The support mm -hmm. heroes would actually go back in after each email and then update something or write something, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or at a minimum, it's like make a task, right? So recognize that this question was asked. We don't have internal documentation. Boom. Like task to me to write up our, our theory on this, right? How do we process refunds that are denominated in euros and have a transaction fee, you know, or something like Got that, it. right? So they're um, going to handle it in the moment and then say, hey, Tyler, can you figure out how we're going to do this in the future? And then put it into, I guess back then it was your internal WordPress that only you saw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then why did you sell the company? Um, I sold the company for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one was that, um, it, it was, uh, the way I described it was it didn't really have enough of a gas pedal on it in the sense of like, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I bring a lot as an entrepreneur to the table and I was trying to sort of push the business forward. And while it was growing kind of on its own organically, not much of what I did really was changing the trajectory of it. So I was kind of like not seeing dividends to my own energy in the business, which I think is just a function of how niche it was, right? Sometimes businesses get to that point where it's like, there's just not, there's not a gas pedal to make this thing go faster. Uh, so it's just going to kind of grow on its own. Um, and so that I think lends itself a lot towards maybe it makes sense to sell it, right? Because there's people who will you know, help you de-risk that fact, right? If it's not really growing fast, if you're not adding much unique value to it, maybe they can. 
Um, and so that, that lended sort of led me down the road. And then the other thing was just sort of like, um, I think specifically I read the book about, I forget the name of it, but it was about, uh, the, the founding of Twitter. And there's this exchange in there between like, uh, Ev and Biz, two of the co-founders of Twitter. And they were talking about, um, when the original version of Twitter, that was a podcast startup. And one of them says like, if we pull this off, we're going to be the Kings of podcast hosting. And then the other one asks like, do we want to be the Kings of podcast <laughs> hosting? And the other one says, no, we don't. And that was when they pivoted the business. And I kind of read that and I asked myself the same question. It was like, do I want to be the King of store locators or do I want to put my energy into something else? And the answer was definitely, yes, I want to try something else. Um, so, you know, it was definitely time for the, the, the next act in the play, um, which pushed me towards like, okay, let's run a process and sell this thing. Okay. I know you're not going to say how much you sold it for. We talked about that before. Um, you said it's life-changing. How, how would you describe it? Let me understand how, how it did. Yeah. I mean, I know it's annoying, but it's just, you know, a lot of, uh, the, the funds. So we sold it to a, a fund called SureSwift Capital. A lot of the funds all have the same policy. They don't want the purchase price getting out there because it kind of just gives people the wrong impression because they have this, we do the same thing now when we invest in companies, it's like you, if you put the purchase price out there now you have this very specific number in terms of, you know, investing or valuation or how, you know, it, how, how the company was sold for. And then you have this ambiguous sort of aspect, which is, well, what, what was the business dynamic like? How fast was it growing? All that kind of stuff. So it's just easier, I think, for everyone to keep those um, quiet. But yeah, I mean, I call it a life-changing exit. I know that's kind of a little bit cliche. Um, you know, for me, I really think there's like two categories of exits. One is, literally never work again. You know, this would be maybe like tens of millions for most people um, where they can just say, I can actually just retire now and never really care about money for the rest of my life. Uh, and then there's kind of like level up exits. Um, and I, maybe I stole this from, from ADP NAR, um, from, from Conversio and Cogsy. I think either we had a conversation about this, but, but that's who I'm picturing having this discussion with. But this idea of like level up money, which is that, hey, a whole new sort of array of options are now on the table for you um, that weren't before, but you know, you still kind of do need to do something with the rest of your career. Um, and so that's where it was, you know, yeah. Would you say in the millions? Yeah. But not tens of millions? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Seven figures for sure. What'd you do with the money? Um, I... What did I do with the money? I, I don't mean, picture you being a real estate guy. A lot of people that I interview will then buy a bunch of properties. That's their thing. They need to touch the assets. I don't picture you putting it all in NFTs. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting. I mean, yeah. So I went through this sort of phase that I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through after they have their first exit, which is, you know, you've kind of been scrapping by, you're probably like long-term financial picture was a bit of a mess and you weren't really spending a lot of time thinking about investing because you were focused on building equity in your business. And then all of a sudden you have this pile of cash and you need to figure out what to do with it for maybe the first time in your life. Um, and I was definitely in that space. Um, I guess the one thing, I mean, I did buy my parents a house uh, and help them retire, which that was my only real estate investment. Um, but you're right. I definitely did not go out and buy a bunch of uh, fourplexes and stuff like that. Um, the main thing being that I was like, you know, 
there are a lot of people. It's a very competitive market, like buying real estate and renting it out. And I'm not sure I'm actually that good at it. <laughs> so why do I want to like sell this business and take this capital and get into another business where I might not actually be in even the top 20% of people doing it, right? Um, and so I kept kind of running this process. It was like, what do I do with this money? It's like, man, you know, the thing I know really well is software companies. I wish I could invest in software companies. And I started looking at that. And really the only ways to do that were on the real traditional venture capital model, right? You could go on AngelList, you could invest in startups alongside VCs, that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, that's not what I want. <laughs> uh, what I want to do is invest in these kinds of companies that I really know, and I couldn't find any way to do that. And that really led me to this concept of like, maybe I should start a fund. Maybe there's other people in my position that also want to invest in these companies that are looking for a way to do so. Um, so I ended up investing, you know, most of, of the capital um, in my own funds. You know, um, you got to kind of like reserve some for each and every fund, but, you know, for sure by the end of, you know, a year or two from now, significant majority of my net worth will be wow. in my own funds. Um, yeah. And the thing that you wanted was, was what? What's the type of entrepreneur, the type of business that you wanted to invest in? I mean, at the time, I would have used the word bootstrapper, right? Because it was these folks building, you know, profitable, sustainable companies that were growing under their own customer revenue at, you know, sort of sustainable pace and um, generally were, you know, majority owned by the founder and all that kind of stuff. Um, I really experienced firsthand that, even these kinds of businesses, once they get to a certain scale, they can grow under their own revenue, but it is really painful at the early stages, right? Because maybe you're having to do it as a nights and weekends thing for like an entire year as you grow from a thousand bucks a month to 15,000 bucks a month and you can finally quit, you know, your job. Um, you know, or maybe you are doing everything. You're writing code, you're designing product, you're doing marketing copy, you're doing support tickets, you know, all of that for like, which was what I did for probably at least a year and a half. I think I was doing 100% of the work solo. All that's like really painful and a relatively small amount of money can make that part of the process much, much, much more efficient and really shrink that time, right? Where you can get to where you would have all, you would have gotten there anyway, but you get there in six months instead of 18 to 24 months, right? Um, and so that's basically the, the gist of it. I was like, these are great businesses and I want to invest just at the kind of early stage and get that upside. And as long as we don't invest too much money, you know, the kind of exits that these companies might want are still going to be great returns for us, right? So if we only invest a little bit, they don't go on and raise millions more in, in future capital and then they sell for $20 million, you know, we might get a really strong return out of that. Um, which is, you know, in traditional early stage investing, that would be like a failure. If you're an angel investor, you're looking for these billion dollar outcomes, um, you know, and so something sells for 20 million and you're like, oh, I don't, th this is a write-off for me, basically. Um, Bec yeah. Because so many of them go away. So many have these really ambitious ideas. They're going to do something that's never been done before and then they just can't pull it off. And so they go away and yeah. you need one really big one to make up for all that. Exactly. The, the classic thinking in terms of early stage investing, which most people doing angel investing or venture capital think of is almost all these things are going to fail, you know, and so I'm going to need to have a Facebook, an Uber, an Airbnb in my portfolio to make up for 
all this failure that's going to happen in the portfolio. And a lot of folks treat this as like it's a law of physics, right? The failure rate of any early stage company is going to be very, very high, you know, so you have to do it this way. And our theory is that um, actually there's a bit of a feedback loop, which is if you are really aggressively trying to build a $10 billion company, you are getting advice from people who only want you to build a $10 billion company, you're going to do a lot of stuff that is going to increase your chances of building a $10 billion company. You're gonna hire really aggressively. You're gonna raise a lot of capital. You're gonna spend a bunch of money on growth, right? All that is gonna make it more likely that you do create a really big company, but it's also gonna make it much more likely that the company fails, right? Because you're taking on so much risk, so much expenses, all this kind of stuff that if you don't hit that perfect trajectory, you might shut down what could otherwise have been a pretty good company. And we're seeing a lot of that actually in the market um, right now. Um, but that's our theory is that you can actually, thats a, it's not a law of physics, it's a, a dial that you can turn where you can take less of those risks and increase your chances of, of success. How many of the companies you invested in closed up? So far we've had zero companies shut down out of about 70 portfolio companies in three years. And this has been over three years. Yeah. Because when you invest in them, how do you know that they're going to be a right fit, that they're going to produce a profit? Yeah, I mean, we have a, at this point, we have a pretty elaborate investment process. We have, you know, some different theses on which kinds of markets we think are attractive. Um, you know, we look at, does the founder have like unfair advantages? So, you know, for example, if you are going to launch something in the podcasting space, you know, I would mark that down as like unfair advantage, right? Tons of trust built up in this market, big audience of relevant people, you know, all that kind of stuff, much more likely to succeed than a random person with an idea in the podcast okay. space, right? So we're looking for those kinds of unfair advantages. We analyze the underlying markets. So we have very specific opinions on um, what I call the ability to build a micro monopoly. So you know, we're looking for folks who are going after markets that are big enough that they can build a great business in them, but actually small enough that they're not going to get a ton of competition from, for example, huge incumbents or, um, you know, tons of venture capital going in. Give me an in example. Like them. what's one that, let's say as you're explaining this, maybe you can give examples of yeah. these types of companies. So who had an unfair advantage, who, and then who had a micro monopoly well, I'll give you a, maybe also a negative example. Um, so uh, in terms of what kind of markets we try to avoid, because it's basically the opposite of the traditional mm -hmm. angel investing approach, which is all about going after really, really big markets. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had an opportunity to invest in a couple of really smart entrepreneurs at the early stage building virtual conference software, right? So awesome timing, right? You know, virtual conferences in the middle of the pandemic, um, they're going to do great. We actually passed on all of them because we were very, very certain that VCs were going to put humongous amounts of capital into folks in this space. It was just too big of a market, too much momentum. And, you know, lo and behold, right, you saw um, Hopin basically in the raising like hundreds of millions of capital in in 18 months. Uh, and unfortunately, like they really did swamp out a lot of the, you know, 
more calm company bootstrapper types in, in, in the market. Um, and so we proactively avoid those kinds of things. So earlier on, in terms of founder unfair advantage, we were talking about MakerPad, which is one of our investments. Um, that's a, one of the things where we definitely were excited to invest in because you know the founder, Ben, had been one of the first people building all of these incredible things with no code that no one had ever seen before, right? An Airbnb clone, a fully functioning Airbnb without code. We're like, okay, he has an audience, he has credibility, he has trust. Um, we're going to be excited to back that. Um, some other stuff would be like we're investing. I mentioned a lot of like industrial applications. We're investing in a lot of like full stack SaaS for X industry, like the film production industry, the food production industry, the um, short term rental industry, like um, a lot of these things. So um, those are the kinds of markets that we really like where you know, you're just not going to see a humongous amount of competition um, in them because they're just perceived to be a little bit too niche. I get that. I think you have a testimonial product. Yep. And I wished for years that someone would make it easier to get video testimonials and right. just to be able to send someone an easy way to do it. I can't imagine a lot of players getting into that space, even Loom that is adjacent to it, that has a big footprint in the video space. is just not jumping in. All right. Let me talk about my sponsor and then I want to come back and understand things like what's, what about taxes? Taxes work against you when you've got this model, but uh, first my sponsor is masterworks. Do you know how masterworks works? I have a general sense of it. Yes. It's a pretty freaking good idea, right? I can't imagine why nobody had done it before. The idea is this, you watch all these rich people, they invest in works of art. You think maybe it's because they appreciate the beauty of it, but no, they don't even put it in their own homes. They either store it. And there's just one place I think in New York that they all get to store it and it's safe and so on. And then they insure it, or they lend it to museums to, to, uh, put it up on their walls. But the idea is they don't even want to look at it every day. What they want is to own it. And the reason they want to own it is because these companies come and go. I mean, no offense to the companies that comms investing in, but you're not looking at a company that's going to be around 500 years from now. We don't even know what the internet's going to be like 500 years from now, right? But we have a pretty good sense that Picasso, especially considering how limited it is in production, how few items there are, is going to be around. It's going to be as scarce, if not more scarce, to get work from this period. And so what Masterworks does is, you know, most people can't buy works of art because it's too expensive. There is a value in it. Contemporary art prices outpace the S&P 500 total return from 95 to 220 by 164%. So there's like scarcity, there's growth. What if we just buy one and then we securitize it and let a bunch of people own it and then we'll have the ability to spread out the cost of it and then also allow them to create a market in it and so on. Anyway, that's the idea behind Masterworks. It's been going great. They have over 400,000 members. It's been a bit difficult to get into their membership roles, but if you're interested and you're listening to the sound of my work, to my voice, all you have to do is go to masterworks.art/mixergy, masterworks.art/mixergy and we'll always have a link to it on the site along with this uh, program if you forget. And when you go there, you can just schedule a call with one of their people. It's not like you sign you sign in and then they immediately say, give me, give me your credit card information. We'll take money out of your account. No, they actually have a conversation with you and it's an ongoing relationship. And if it works, you can do it pretty inexpensively. If it doesn't work, you move on. Here's a, a disclaimer. Since I've just talked about numbers, I should tell you, you should get the disclaimers at masterworks.io slash CD and then go over to masterworks.art slash Mixergy and 
have a conversation, see if it's a good fit for you the way it is for people like Oprah. If Oprah Winfrey does it, it can't be bad. Am I right, Tyler? Big Oprah fan, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and generally a fan of this kind of thing. I mean, without giving specific investment advice, I do feel like individual investors have been locked out of far too many assets that right. were only reserved for wealthy people, including investing in early stage startups and things like that. Um, so it's it's really great to see folks having more options than, you know, just the things they can buy in the public market, um, like ETFs and stuff, which are great, but you know, more options is always better. You know, at some point I do see, I remember at some point I see that a lot of people that I watched over the years are basically living off of their investments and that's it. And one of the first people I saw who did that was this guy, Ryan, I interviewed him early on. He was this guy with a nose piercing would scooter to work in Manhattan, which was kind of a weird thing to do. And then, um, he just put his money into investments and was just kind of hanging out. And I don't even know what he did. I know what he did. He decided to be a do-gooder in different ways. And he started going to these, I think, atheist meetings and stuff like that. So he was getting to live that kind of a life. But his money was coming from investments. And partially it's because he had access to early on angel investments and other um, investments that most people didn't. Today, it is much easier to get into angel. If I wanted to invest in the comm fund as an LP, what do I do? Uh, if you go to comfund.com, C-A-L-M fund.com, um, there's a little tab that says for investors. Um, and then there's tons and tons and tons of information there, our pitch deck, our historical performance, all that kind of stuff is public, um, which is pretty cool. Re re relatively recent, last two years, SEC rules changed where we can be um, we can be public facing with, with all that information. You used to have to be very circumspect about it, but, um, you can go there and, and you can invest. Um, you do have to be an accredited investor, uh, which is, I think kind of an annoying rule that I don't totally agree with, but, um, it is the law. Um, but the good news is that, um, do your own research, but a lot of entrepreneurs can, do not think that they are accredited investors because the, the general rule is you have to have either, you know, I think it's over $200,000 a year in income for two years or a million dollar net worth. Um, but I will say, uh, in our opinion, um, check with your lawyer, um, your ownership in a business can count towards your net worth, right? And so a lot of entrepreneurs have a business that is worth more than a million dollars that they own 100% of or, you know, whatever that math works out to. And if that's true, um, we have a lot of folks who've kind of verified as accredited through that format and we're able to invest. And, and we keep our investment minimums pretty low. You just sign up for a quarterly subscription. Um, I think our minimum is either 10, 10K US or 15K US per quarter. Um, so we're talking about like 40 to 60K to, and stop to get anytime. started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Are you doing it through AngelList or are you doing it your own? Um, we, we originally started on AngelList. AngelList is great, big, big fan of their product, but they're very focused on venture funds, uh, which we are not. So we sort of kept bumping into, Hey, we want to do this. And they're like, no, we're trying to productize this for a thousand other funds. We don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of mutually agreed to, to part ways. And it was really a no hard feeling situation. So we have our own tech stack. You... What's that? Sorry. One of the weird things that you do is you'll take an ongoing share of the profit before owner salary, which is the kind of thing that it, it's, it's not common. Sorry, you're starting to talk about the stack that you use to run this. 
No, no, that's that's a great example, right? Is that we're investing in these companies that may become very profitable. It's it's I would say it's after owner's salary. The way we kind of define profits is that we we lump the founder compensation and net profit together. And then if that number goes above a certain threshold, um, then we take a percentage of that incremental amount, if that makes sense. So the founders are able to like pay themselves whatever they want. Um, it's just once it goes over a certain threshold, then our, our share kicks in. But yeah, we have a bunch of companies now that are paying us, you know, relatively small uh, quarterly profit share payments. And if you're managing a bunch of venture funds, you don't want to be handling all those transactions, right? I mean, it, it's literally like hundreds of transactions a year that you have to process and then you have to distribute it to all the LPs. So, so we built our own kind of tech stack and then we're working with a really great fund administrator um, called a, a Duro Advisors um, that they mm. make sure that we do that whole process, you know, professionally. What about taxes? One of the pains for me is I have profits at the company and then I have to give away about half of them every year. And so you make this forward movement and then half of it goes back and you're kind of forced by the system, by the tax system to go and invest in the future of the business. Because if you invest in something, if you take a hundred thousand dollar profit and before it hits the bottom line at the end of the year, you invest in something that even adds $50,000 to your business, you're, you're kind of ahead. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, one of the ways that we've tried to structure our strategy and our, our investment structures and all that is to sort of be indifferent to what decisions the founder makes along those lines. So there are going to be a lot of times where it makes sense to just reinvest all the profits. And in that case, you're not making a profit share payment because you've you've just, you know, grown your cost base. Um, and we're okay with that, right? Sometimes that's the right decision. No, I mean, for, for you and your investors, pay. they're going to have to pay taxes on everything that they get. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there it's an unavoidable aspect of um, income generating funds like this. Of course, like, you know, in general, the way it works is profit share payments would be income or dividends. And then you you get capital gains if the company sells, right? Because we, we still have mm -hmm. a little bit of equity in the business where we get a percentage if they if they liquidate. And that's treated as capital gains. And you know, but sometimes you have these businesses where it just makes sense either for the founders personally or just overall in the business. Hey, you know, we're going to have a million dollar profit this year and we actually don't have anything on deck that we want to reinvest that in. Let's just take some money off the table. Our goal is just to be aligned with that. But it's true. You know, you do taxes are whatever death and taxes, right? It's, it's a sort of fact no, of life. I mean, there's one way to avoid it or at least to reduce it is by going for capital gains putting all the profits back in the business right. and then selling it later on. And you're intentionally going against that. I wouldn't say we're intentionally going against that. So, um, you know, the way I think about it is we are interested in maximizing the optionality for the founders. So giving them the widest possible number of scenarios that are a success for them to be a success for us. Um, you know, if you look at our funds now, we're 70 companies in, the vast majority are still reinvesting everything into growth. And we definitely expect that, you know, when you when all is totaled and said and done on, on each of our funds, probably the majority of the money coming back to investors is going to come via exits, right? Because of because of this dynamic, it just makes a lot of sense to reinvest as long as you're comfortable with the risk as a founder. And as long as you're making good decisions, it makes more sense to 
you know, grow your revenue, especially if you have like recurring revenue businesses where every dollar of recurring revenue is worth like five in enterprise value when you sell, you know? Um, so yeah, we definitely think that a lot of it will come from, from the founders choosing to reinvest and then exit. Um, but we want to keep the other path open and not feel like we're pressuring the founders to double down and, you know, play double or nothing every single year. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is, look, this is not going to be our biggest source of profit, and that's not how we're going to make our money. It's just how we show the the founder that we will give them the flexibility to earn a profit if that's what they want and have a lifestyle business that goes on forever, essentially, if that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and it ends up being a nice mix for investors, right, where, you know, like last year, I mean, I tweeted this, so... um Last year, our fund won, um, the first fund we launched, it paid out like an 8% dividend through those profit shares and also doubled in value on paper, right? You know, and so like, that's the kind of thing we're going for is this nice mix of like, hey, you're going to get some some income from the profitable companies, the ones that are reinvesting are going to grow in value, and then they're going to eventually exit. And so you you don't have all your eggs in one basket across this portfolio of companies. You're going to get different exposure to different kinds of, of returns. Oh man. I mean, I think I found the job that I'm going to do for the rest of my career. Um, so, you know, we're just continuing to do more of everything. I think we're at a really interesting point now where you know, when we first started doing this, it was just kind of, weird, right? No, no, not many other people were doing it. Um, and a lot of folks just kind of looked at it a little bit skeptically as like, well, this, this isn't the way we've always done early stage investing. So probably it's not going to work out. And we're definitely in a phase now where, you know, the, the feedback cycles in this business are really long. <laughs> it takes many, many years to figure out if you're right or any good at it. Yeah, that's um, but we're so starting frustrating. To, yeah, it is. No, I mean, I, I, I said for the first two years, at least, we basically just had to keep going on faith alone because you just don't get enough feedback that you're actually doing a good job. You know, you get some some little data points like how well are the companies doing and stuff like that. But but is this all going to add up to a good return for my investors? Is something you don't really get confidence in until many years in three and change years in, we're just now hitting that point where we have really high confidence that, Hey, we're actually, we're actually right about a lot of this stuff. And we're pretty likely to, you know, to, to prove the, the doubters wrong. Um, so, so that's translating into, okay, how do we scale this up? Because there's so, so, so many companies out there that fit our model that want to work with us. You know, every month we, invest in a few companies, but we could have invested in a dozen. Um, and we want to just keep scaling that up to meet that demand. So I'm thinking about how to raise a bunch more capital, how to bring on more folks, you know, to augment my investing decision. Uh, we have a scout program that's kind of like our our training ground for future investors to join the Calm Fund. They can make some really good recommendations. And once you've made a bunch of those, we're going to have some conversations about, hey, do you want to do this full time? Um, so that's and the recommendations. That's I saw the scout option. That's anyone essentially could, is it apply to be in it? And then if, if they send over, actually, how does it work? Yeah. The way it works is you apply to be a scout. We're, we're pretty liberal about approving folks. It's, you know, we, we basically just don't want, you know, spammers and stuff like that. Um, so pretty much anyone can join as a scout. 
And then as a scout, you have two options. You basically find a company that you think is awesome for the comm fund. You say, hey, go apply. You could basically tell them one, you could say, just list my name as a scout. And if we scout that company, um, we'll pay you like a, just a cash compensation, right? At this point, it's uh, $2,000. Could change in the future. So, um, but there's some amount of cash compensation. Um, or as a scout, you have an option to do a little bit more work, which is you can write an investment memo. So we have a template and a bunch of guidance on how I write my own memos on really much more detail about why you think this is a good investment and why you think it's a good fit specifically for our Calm Fund thesis. And they can fill that out. And if they do that extra work, which they can just do in our app, um, and then we invest in that company, then they can choose to have either a higher cash compensation or a carry share. So they can have a share in the profits of that individual investment. Mm. If it turns out you know, to be successful one day, it shares profits or it exits, um, they'll get some of that upside. All right. The website is comfund.com. I hate talking about investments because then I have to say things like do your own research and yeah. I don't even know what to say, people. I'm not here to promote Jack. Well, I am here to promote the sponsors, but um, <laughs> I'm not here to tell you what to do, just to tell you what's out there. I'm fascinated by your story as an entrepreneur, Tyler. I even feel, frankly, the Com Fund as an entrepreneurial story is fascinating to me. And um, I think that I think the companies and the tools you invest in are just so perfect for our world that, you know, the section of your site that's portfolio, the one mm -hmm. suggestion I would have for you is I, I think that they're so perfect for the kinds of companies that are, whose founders are listening to me that I'd want to find a way to make them a little more accessible and just almost like a product hunt for your tools. You have selected these companies, not by upvoting, but by investing in them. They're phenomenal tools. To be honest with you, there are a few times in the conversation where you kind of lost me because I was looking down and saying, oh, I know ZipMessage, great tool. And then I said, I like that I can do testimonials. And then there was this one thing, Sparkloop. And then I mm -hmm. started looking at Sparkloop's website because they're phenomenal for newsletters. I remember the founder of the, of, uh, the Hustle, Sam Parr, said that one of the ways that he grew was adding this viral loop to the bottom of all of his messages. And I said, wait, Sparkloop does that automatically. And then I said, what's Conversify? And anyway. I feel like you've got these really phenomenal tools in here and I, I just want to see more about them. That's good advice. Yeah. Well, I'm going to definitely right. put that in front of my marketing team. <laughs> yes. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. Remember, if you're hiring developers and you're doing the remote work thing, you really should be talking to the people over at Lemon. Go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. And number two, when you're ready to consider adding art to your portfolio, Go to masterworks.art.art slash Mixergy. Masterworks.art slash Mixergy. I'm grateful to them for sponsoring. And Tyler, good talking to you, man. Yeah, likewise. This was awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, everyone.